Hi everybody, it's Toby Miller here. Welcome to the Cultural Studies Podcast. I'm in downtown LA in the coffee bar on Spring Street, just near the corner of 6th, and I am very lucky to be with an old and much beloved friend and colleague, Christina Riegert. Christina, how was that Swedish pronunciation right there? <laughs> it's fine. It was okay? Very good. Christina very good. Riegert? How would you say it if you were speaking to a real Swede? Riegert. Oh, so I'm rolling my arm and I shouldn't yeah, yeah, be? Yeah, yeah, yeah. There's rolling. no rolling of the arm? No, because it's German. And not in Christina either? Or yeah, Christi Christina, yeah. Christina, oh, but the last name, your last name is German, not Swedish. Right, so, Swiss German. So Christina Riegert. Yes. That's interesting. So it's quite complicated to go from rolling your arm to not rolling your arm. <laughs> <laughs> or did you leave a tip, by the way? I didn't. Okay, I'll just go back okay. and leave a tip. Okay. So while I'm going, while I'm back there for a second, please tell our listeners about what you're doing here? Why have you been allowed into this great country? Actually, one reason might be that you're a citizen. <laughs> I've just been at the Transmedia uh, Hollywood 3 conference at uh, University of Southern California uh, with my good friend Jennifer Holt and um, uh, uh, many people from the industry talking about Transmedia, the future of Transmedia. And then before that, I was at a conference in International Studies Association of all places, uh, where I presented uh, a paper. But you are uh, a proper international relations person. You're a certified, dyed-in-the-wool political scientist, aren't you? I mean, yes. Well, as you once put it to me many years ago in a bar in Barcelona, I'm a recovering political scientist. I thought it was you who said that to me. No, you said that to me. Oh, okay. Somebody had said it to me. Somebody said it to somebody at three in the morning. <laughs> right. <laughs> no, yes. So my, my first uh, degree, my doctorate degree, actually my master's and my doctorate are both in international relations. Right, yes. right. And in fact, that's been an important theme in your work in communication studies. International yeah. globalization. Globalization yeah. is mm -hmm. fair to Comparative. Say. Yeah. Comparative so work. What was the talk that you were giving, the panel that you were on at this international studies meeting? Well, um, our panel itself um, was four of us actually all from Sweden, uh -huh. uh, except for Lance Bennett, who was who's working on a Swedish project. Known to his friends as W Lance. D w Lance Bennett, <laughs> yes. Known to his real intimates. <laughs> yeah, so Lance is working on a project with Alex Segeberg on Twitter and protest revolutions or protest protest uh, demonstrations. And uh, so we, my colleague Alexa Robertson, uh, is working on um, Al Jazeera, Russia Today, and, and uh, well, all the kind of um, counterflow television news channels. Um, and uh, we are working on blogospheres. The Understanding Arab Blogospheres was the title of my piece. Wow, wonderful. Mm -hmm. And tell us a little bit about that study, whom you're working with, what you're doing, how you're doing it, and apart from those boring questions, what have you found out? All right. Um, well, you know, we're in the middle of the study, so right. there are no um, hard, hard and fast hard conclusions. And fast conclusions. <laughs> I mean, we could... Um, we could say social media is fast, social change is slow. <laughs> Fantastic. I think I'll Twitter that. Did someone pay you to find that out? No. <laughs> um, no, but to be serious, I mean, I actually am interested in who you're doing it with and how you're doing it. Okay, so well, who's in the group? Okay, it's uh, 
my colleague, um, she's an Arabist from Uppsala. She's a professor of Arabic, Gail Ramsey. I think I met Gail. I think you must have. In a train station. Oh, yes. In London. In London. Yeah. That's right. Very nice person. Yes. Yeah, so Gail and I, uh, we got funding for this in, in uh, March 2010. Yeah. And uh, it's called, um, the, our original title was the, uh, the Nature and Impact of Arab Blogospheres. And what we wanted to do was to see whether Arab bloggers are stretching the boundaries of the public sphere by saying things they could not have said 10 years ago, by um, saying them in a discourse that, that um, itself is subversive, by um, talking about political and social, linguistic ways of uh, stretching the norms of the public sphere in the Arab world. Um, because this is what many um, scholars are saying that not only the new media but also the transnational media are doing. Uh, the uh, Al Jazeera's and um, uh, so, so we wanted to find out if they are, if they are stretching the boundaries of the public sphere, how are they doing it? Are they doing it, um, are they doing it by, by introducing death metal? Or are they doing it by uh, uh, doing politically subversive things? Are women um, participating in ways that women never have been able to participate in the public sphere? You know, in Saudi Arabia, half of the blog, half of the blogosphere are women, and that's not very strange because women cannot go out very much. <laughs> so, and they and they have computers. So, so you know that just because they're online doesn't mean they're stretching the boundaries or that they are participating in, in meaningful ways. So, um, we wanted to look at. Um, so we chose. The, um, we did a special index with the help of our able assistant himself, a human rights blogger um, from Egypt, Mina Zekri, who worked with us a whole the first year. And we constructed an index to choose the most linked to and most visited blogs in um, uh, Lebanon, Egypt, uh, Saudi Arabia, and Kuwait. And um, Kuwait was a, a choice that came after we um, we were originally going to say the United Arab, Arab Emirates, but we were because of this big study of Arab blogospheres by um, Bruce Etling and. Um, at the Berkman Center, they found that the Kuwaiti blogosphere had was had an English and an Arabic, and that they were quite separate. So we thought this was kind of interesting to see, you know, what people blog about in English and what they blog about in Arabic, and if they're different or they're similar. Because of course, many people in the West only look at Twitter feeds that are in English, or um, uh, look at the bloggers that are only in English, and draw conclusions from that. The same with the State Department. <laughs> yes, the same with the... Well, they should have more by now. More uh, Arabic speakers. They have very few really fluent Arabists, as I understand. They still have more than 130 fluent Russian speakers. And in fact, one day that will, of course, be of value. But nevertheless, yes, they're very short, I think, on really, really competent Arabists. In any event... So that was what you did. That's very exciting, I think. Mm -hmm. And have you published any of it yet? Can we see any well, of Well, we results? have a piece um, coming up. We have a special um, media and uh, Arabic media issue, guest issue, that Miyazi Christensen is um, guest editing for television and new media. Uh -huh. 
um, although we've had some issues with reviewers, so we're a little late. <laughs> we hoped it would come out in 2012, but our piece is accepted now, so we're just waiting for the others. So we'll see. It probably won't be out in 2013. And it's about the Lebanese blogospheres, and it's called um, Actives, Actives, Activist Individualists or Comics. Activist Individualists or, or comics. comics. Can you tell us a bit more about that? Okay, well, we looked at the top 10 Lebanese bloggers, and uh, five in English and five in Arabic, and we asked to what extent we could see them as counterpublics, and what was counterpublics anyway. And I, I guess my piece now at ISA was kind of coming out of that because counterpublics, it seems, is kind of a problematic issue when it comes to new media. Uh, and uh, for the Lebanese blogosphere, I think that the interesting thing about the Lebanese blogosphere is that there are quite a lot of comics and individualists. Um, you know, comics in the, in the sense of daily show and in the sense of, well, a comic strip artist who writes ironically about you know, middle-class Lebanese women um, spending all this money uh, doing their noses and uh, spending, not caring about the environment or um, the sectarian landscape of, of Lebanon and how the media in Lebanon are, are sectarian or they're owned and run by different, uh, different sects. And so the bloggers originally started to, to get away from that, to, to um, distance themselves from a sectarian political system. They want a deconfessionalized secular system. So, I mean, these bloggers are not a representative in terms of, you know, the entire spectrum of political opinion. But these are the top bloggers. So they tell you about what kinds of issues are being spread and what kinds of issues the media are picking up on. Um, so our none of our our bloggers, our 10 bloggers in each blogosphere, none of them are representative, but they are the most linked to and most visited. So. And I guess that's a, a valuable measure in itself. Is there anything that you've identified about their backgrounds? Because there's some kind of almost regal status that seems to be given by the bourgeois media in their discussion of bloggers. On the one hand, the bourgeois media doesn't like them. Because or don't like them because they represent lack of a formal accreditation and training. On the other, they like them because they're the voice of the street, mm. not just the Arab street, mm. but everywhere. Mm. They're given this extraordinary mm. legitimacy mm. that I am extremely puzzled by because I read them. I've, I have to confess, the vast majority seem absolutely inane and dull to mm. me in the languages that I read. Mm. But, well, I, I think it uh, depends, uh, depends. The Lebanese, now our period is 2010, I should say this. This is before the revolutions, the uprisings. The, I will call them the uprisings, not the revolutions. Um, the Lebanese uh, are leftist, secular. And um, the, the Arabic ones are social activists and freelance um, freelance. So they work for, for example, Al-Akhbar, which is a leftist uh, magazine. Um, the interesting thing about the Egyptians, which is a point I made at the ISA, was that the Egyptians are also leftist and secular. We have one mother, Muslim Brotherhood blogger, one uh, feminist relationship blogger, um, one um, Bedouin Sinai blogger, 
Uh, but otherwise, they're also um, liberal secularists. Although they could be Trotsky, they're Trotskyists um, to to the right to the right wing. So Sand Monkey is quite like right wing or liberal, if you put all those terms on the Egyptians. Whereas uh, the Trotskyist, who belongs to the to the revolutionary socialists in Egypt, he was a freelancer for the LA Times. So he was a Trotskyist at the time he worked for them, and the LA Times doesn't seem to have minded. They wouldn't know what a Trotskyist was. Uh, probably. <laughs> what about... Uh, and, but let me just yeah, say sorry, that the please, thing please. about them is, what we saw with the linking is that the Western media, LA Times, well not the LA Times, but the Huffington Post, BBC and CNN I think it was, linked to the English language Egyptian bloggers and to Wa'el Abbas, who is the very famous, um, very famous Arabic blogger. So if we get the impression in the West that, you know, all the bloggers are liberal, secular, left-wing people, that is because we're only looking at those. We're not looking at the Muslim Brotherhood blogger, Anekwan, um, although he is quite liberal compared to his party. There's a split between the youth mother brotherhood uh, who wants to reform and the older brotherhood members as well uh, because the, the younger ones are well connected digitally and they've had access to other people's opinions and they've learned to, to discuss things over ideological boundaries and to come to some kind of uh, at least accepting them um, I think. so. Uh, but I think it's interesting if we get our impression from what is English in English or these very famous, I mean they're celebrities, the Egyptian bloggers are celebrities. They, many of them have worked for, for Western organizations, news organizations, like Wael Abbas who worked for the um, Deutsche Presse Agentur Agency or whatever it's called, DPA. Um, and uh, the Brotherhood blogger now works for Al Jazeera as a producer. And um, uh, so it's um, the, the, about five of ten have worked for either um, publications in Egypt or or um, Western news organizations. So I think we get a, I think we get a bit a little bit of a skewed view if we think that these are the people. I mean. And that's the problematic with the, the counter-public notion. They may be counter-public and be put in jail in their own countries, which they, which they have been and they are, yet they're the darlings of us in the West. And they're part of the bourgeois media in terms of professionalism and accreditation and so on. So that's fascinating. How would this compare, do you think, say, with Sweden? The blogosphere in Sweden. I don't know whether you've I'm not so Well, I'm not so well versed in it. I mean, for many years. Don't you read the blogs on hairdo and makeup? No, see, that's it. Most of the. You, so you, <laughs> you obviously know this story already. I don't, I'm just All right. asking. Well, so, so the Swedish blogs, um, I mean, up till about three or four years ago, they were very much fashion. The biggest, the most popular blog was a, was a fashionista, 18 years old. Um, and I mean, you get the impression that her father kind of runs that blog <laughs> in terms of, um, I mean, he's very involved in, in having her, her sponsored uh, in different ways. 
That's also one of the things we would we would ask of the Egyptians. Who's paying? Well, the thing is about the Egyptians is that they don't have PayPal there, so there's no way they can get money for advertising. So it's 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 a more difficult thing for them in terms of 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 who is paying. I think their class tells you something that they perhaps don't need to work. Uh, so they're trustafarians. The blogosphere is a trustafarian sphere. Well, in Le in in Kuwait and Lebanon, they are working. All of them in different spheres. Some are working in IT. Others are journalists and freelance journalists. And uh, during the time we were in Egypt, that was right after the uprising. So I don't think anyone worked then. Um, so that, I think that must be in. Um, but some of them, of course, have won international prizes, so they're paid to go around and speak at different conferences. Let's go back a little in your history, if we could, uh, to what is sometimes patronizingly and idiotically referred to in this country as legacy media. Uh, legacy media was used in the United States to describe it is what bloggers and other you know, unqualified upstarts with lots of opinions and no knowledge used to deride the bourgeois media. Legacy media has just been handed down, um, it's traditional, it has no understanding of the new world. This is their claim that they're independent of corporations and so on. So you have a long history of studying legacy media, in particular television and television news and current affairs. Could you tell us a bit about the work you've done there? There's been a lot mm. of it. It's been very comparative and international, mm. with a lot mm. of US angles and European angles. Mm. Um, well, the I've done a lot of comparative work uh, uh, on war and crisis. So my original thesis was about um, Swedish uh, public service media, uh, the, you know, the largest news program, Rapport, and the largest British BBC nine o'clock news at the time it was about the way these two public service organizations covered for co conflicts wars and conflicts in which neither was involved um, and that was basically that started off kind of this comparative work where whereby we, we see that the dis domestication of um, of international events. So international events are then translated into each country's um, national lenses and yeah. prisms in order to make it interesting but also to make it um, palatable, uh, understandable in a short space of time, um, each with its own history. Uh, for example, a, Sw a Swedish audience would never understand long descriptions of military activities. Like having having not been in a war for a hundred and I don't know how many years, uh, military strategies is not something the public is, is is versed in. Whereas the British are well versed in this. Jerry was over here, we were there, <laughs> and then we went over the hill. Yes. <laughs> Um, yeah, so from there then I went on to kind of propaganda and did a lot of work on the Kosovo, NATO and uh, the way NATO was sold, sold the, the, um, the bombing of Kosovo and Serbia to Europe um, and looked at speci specifically at the British media. I also looked at information warfare from both sides, from the Serbian side which was kind of innovative at that time. They were using, you know, targets 
and people all saying we are targets. So they had some innovative kind of um, creative uh, protest demonstrations in Serbia at the time because these very liberal Western type Serbians couldn't believe that they were being bombed by their old allies, the British, <laughs> for example. So I did some of, of that work and then... Um, I don't think it did them a lot of good didn't help protesting them. like that, but nevertheless, it is interesting, yes. No, because what happened is, is that if you are bombed, even if you don't like your autocratic leader, you, you are forced to side with them. Absolutely. So it forces everyone to, to, um, to band together as all risking death at one at the at same one time. time. And by the way, uh, Christina mentions this when we're at the point of a very important anniversary of that conflict just this week. Right. Um, it's, what, 20 years since the major bombing of Sarajevo. Yes. And we're getting on towards 15 years of the Dayton Accords. Uh, and these are still, for those who are not there or don't know these places, occupied territories in many ways. Mm. I mean, they're occupied by the victors mm. and then they're reorganized ethnically. Mm. Not in 100% mm. ways, but very much. Right? I mean, these are real living conflicts and they're living conflicts about uh, Christians and Muslims as well. Well, I was just told by my colleague who's here that um, on the, the news today, they said that our foreign minister, Karl Bildt, was not welcome. If, if he didn't want to come back and apologize for Dayton, he was not welcome to come back. In where? Where? In, in Sarajevo. In Sarajevo? Yeah. He was in Bosnia for many years. And why was he not welcome back in Sarajevo? I didn't know because I haven't read the Swedish newspaper today, so I... I don't know, but uh, but apparently it's uh, they are the, Dayton has become a very confl uh, conflictual discourse. Oh, absolutely, because yeah. it I mean basically was a very good band aid, and they've never worked out how to remove the plaster. I don't want to belabor the metaphor too much and produce organic polities that operate, and so they have had ethnic lines drawn that were part of, in, a, in an odd way, an ironic way, the cleansing, to use that awful term, that was employed mm. by some on the Serbian side, mm. by the government, mm. during those awful years. Mm. That is the incredible irony. Mm. And they're still not part of e the EU. They still have, uh, they're, they're still kind of separated. So it's... Um, it's, it's, a, it's another explosion waiting to happen, mm. uh, one could argue. Mm. But in any event, so you were doing these studies. Let's get back to the first ones. Four conflicts that neither the British nor the Swedes were involved mm. in. What were the conflicts? The Israeli invasion of Lebanon. The so US early 80s. Yes, the US invasion of Grenada. Mid 80s. The US invasion of Panama. Late 80s. Yes, and the Soviet crackdown on the Baltic states. So, well, that's kind that's of when, that's when they said we want to be we want to be independent, yeah. and the Soviet government went in and people died in Lithuania and Latvia and so so Gorbachev sent in troops and they, they, their parliaments were independent parliaments. Um, so you're, you're focusing really on the period from the, the decade of the 80s? 82 to yes to 90. To 90. Yeah 91. Yeah. 91 was yeah. uh, but I mean they became independent in 91. Right. Uh, but right, right. The, the, the crackdown was in January and they became independent in September. So so 
this was a key. These were key episodes in their yeah. in their um, and their freedom. And you were looking at domestic British television coverage rather yes, than domestic. global. Yeah, there was no global at that time. Right, there but there was the World Service. Yeah, but it radio. wasn't television. You were looking only at TV, and TV is, I, I mean, obviously, in the global north, the most important means over the last forty years of people getting knowledge of foreign policies. Absolutely, it? television is, and at the time when I did this, I started this work in in ninety about, and I didn't finish it until ninety eight. But that's a totally another story. <laughs> But, but you but had a damn good time. I had a, I had a damn good time on my way. No, but um, nobody was studying television for news because there were no archives. The only archives there were was the Glasgow Media Group and the British Film Institute. And at that time, the British Film Institute, it was very... Um, how you could go in and be there just at a, I mean, very small office hours. And, and, and so. tended to be more oriented towards fiction and documentary than news Absolutely. and Absolutely. That's true. They did not have, I'm not even sure they had the news then. Um, yeah, so, and then I, then I continued with uh, comparative Swedish and Danish coverage of the Baltic countries. Just very quickly, can you remind us of the title of that first book of yours, um, your dissertation? Oh my God, can I remember it? Um, uh, nationalizing foreign conflict. Nationalizing foreign conflict, which I think is a great title because it does express that notion. There's a very long subtitle afterwards, so we'll just keep it to nationalizing foreign conflict. Let's leave conflict. it where it was. So then you go on to comparing in another project Swedish and Danish media. Right, and that's that's a project that was at Södertörn where I was for ten years, um, and it's called Media Societies Around the Baltic Sea, and it was a it was a large program By with way, we many have, researchers. We have a Södertörn listener, yes, whom we want to give a shout yes. out to. Yes, the 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 dog in Stockholm, Linus. Linus the Hello, dog. Hello, Linus. <laughs> <laughs> this is a very loyal listener who takes the train from Stockholm to Södertörn and allegedly listens to the podcast. Right. We'll, we'll, hear, we'll hear back if he's, if he's listening. If he's out one. there. <laughs> so, this is when you were at Södertörn University. Yeah. And your, what made you pick uh, Sweden and Denmark, the two imperialists of the region? Right. Um, that's well said. Well said. <laughs> shows, shows that you have knowledge of the Scandinavian countries. Um, what, uh, what it was languages I could understand, <laughs> basically. No, there are always reasons why we choose our topics. Why yes. not be honest about them? Well, yes. it's they true. Were the two big and they were the two imperialists. But it's interesting that it was quite. I mean, it, there was some transnational uh, understandings of the Baltic states, perhaps because they were both, uh, because they both were, had had uh, histories um, in the regions. But there were some differences as well. And Denmark has a tendency to think that things are done to them because it's a small country. Whereas Sweden tends to think that they go places and make things happen. Yeah. And but, so, but there were some general transnational narratives that could not be ascribed, that were, could not be ascribed to Western news organizations. There were things that the BBC just ignored. There were social democratic things. Yeah. There were things about the poor people, suffering and the old people suffering that were common to both both Denmark and, and Swedish news, Danish and Swedish news. More of a welfareist perspective. Welfareist perspective. That was quite interesting and I've, I've not seen it 
since then, I've not, of course, continued this work, but it was an inter interesting regional television news narrative where, you know, most people complain there is no EU transnational news narrative and therefore we will never be able to create a European identity. Although a good colleague of mine, Ulrike Ulausson, she has just argued or she argues that you don't need a, a common European identity or common language to create a European identity. You need to build on your national identity first and then you, then you say what a good European you are. <laughs> <laughs> and therefore you can create a European national. So these are relatively autonomous spheres of uh, culture and, and politics, but it's also saying get the building blocks in place of nationalism and then let go of nationalism hmm. once it's and all she, secure. She sees this, she sees this is happening. That it's uh, this was. She's looking at climate change, the climate change discourse, and and there you can see, at least in the Swedish case, that um, that since the Swedish always have to say how good they are at climate change, it becomes a transnational narrative. Now, speaking of transnationalism and international relations, of course, the whole region has been very important as a at least in its own mind, and in some ways globally, as a fair-minded sort of third party, not quite as uh, committed or partisan, say, as NATO in general, um, or not quite as partisan or committed uh, as the Group of 77. So one thinks of the Helsinki Accords on Human Rights, one thinks of the discussions about uh, in Helsinki that were international about AIDS testing and one thinks of the Swedes and their role in uh, the reduction in nuclear armaments around the globe. You think of the Oslo Accords mm -hmm. as being crucial areas so you get you think of Norway, Finland, Sweden certainly as attempting to utilize what is seen as a somewhat independent reputation mm. in conflict areas by contrast with, say, the British or the Americans. Mm. Mm. Did you see any of that in the coverage that you looked at? That vision of oneself as a, mm. an unbiased and mm. fair-minded intermediary? Mm. Um, well, I didn't, look at I uh, I didn't look at issues of climate change. Um, in terms of uh, the Baltic states, I, I actually have seen instead Swedish colonialism, I must say. Um, uh, of, this is our little brother and we're going to help them be part of the West. Oh, how nice. And we're going to invest in them. <laughs> we're going to buy their television channels. We're going to uh, buy their banks. We're going to buy their telecoms. So I'm afraid I didn't see that in the Baltic states. But I, I think that if we, it depends on what issue. I think in ter, it depends on what issue we're talking about. Perhaps Middle East, we will find that if we're looking at, at the Middle East. But I haven't looked at Swedish coverage of the Middle East. Right. So um, did the Swedish-Danish comparison come out in published form anywhere? Can yes, news of the other. News the of no the other. The Nordicom book, News of the Other. Ah, yes, Nordicom. Could you tell our listeners, the three men and the dog in Lund, what Nordicom is? In fact, some of our listeners who are not from the region and may not be familiar with this uh, excellent organization and its fabulous publications. Okay, well, Nordicom is, I think it's sponsored by the, the uh, Nordic Council of Ministers. And it's the Nordic Council. I think that's the title. 
and uh, it also has UNESCO sponsoring as a, the children's clearinghouse. It's, it's, um, it has a huge databases on anything Scandinavian you'd want to know, in English and in all the Scandinavian languages. It puts out books in, in the Scandinavian languages and in uh, English. It has... Um, and it's all about communications and media. It's all about communications and the media and it's run by a, by a, um, a very energetic Ulla Karlsson. Who has been who has been basically you know running this for a long time um, with the help of some very dedicated people. Um, one of them, Cecilia von Felitz, and one of my colleagues from Sudeton, uh, who specializes on children in the media. So and it's been going for for um, since the beginning of media and communications in Sweden. Right. So, so. 20, 20 years at least. So, so news of the other comes out. And then around this time, you go over and work for the dark side. You become a black ops professor. You had to bring that up, didn't you? <laughs> As the actress said to All the right. bishop. All right. So, um, yes, when I finished my dissertation, or maybe it was after, no, it was after the Baltic, uh, I, was, I did a fellowship at the Swedish Defense College. And... Uh, I ended up being there at least part-time for another f four, three years after. The, the, the fellowship was only two years. Um, and then I ended up staying around for a little while, but not full-time. And uh, they wanted to start a media and communications part. And uh, it, it's that part of the Swedish Defense College is mainly political scientists. But they have something called Christmart that deals with crises and crisis communication. Um, and so, uh, yes, so I had a fellowship there and I wrote the political attainment book there. Or I wrote the, I edited the political attainment book there. And so they let me do it. I didn't have to do anything about propaganda or information warfare or anything. So I could even do that. I could do what I wanted, basically. Tell us about the. Uh, well, first of all, can you tell us what information warfare is actually? Because you've okay. used that term a couple of oh, times, God. and some listeners may be unfamiliar with oh, it. Oh, it's been years since I've done it. I don't even remember it. Um, uh, information warfare. I mean, it, it has a lot of things. It, it it's to, it's a it's a uh, uh, umbrella name for both communication um, of uh, the communication you use in warfare, but also kinetic. Um, actual command and control um, uh, systems that allow the the people who are doing the war to communicate with each other. So it's um, it's 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 both information to outside parties. That means populations or uh, to the to the media. But it's also um, deception of the enemy by by uh, pretending like you're going to attack some target but not another. It's so it's 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 about six or seven things under an umbrella. And right, right. I've, I'm I'm forgetting the, all about it. No, because so. of the nature of the Swedish Secret Services Act, which you're a signatory to and an undercover operative for, you're unable to say anything more at this time. <laughs> Thank and you. And of course, Thank in case you for saving me. <laughs> there are members of the Swedish Defence College in, as marksmen, snipers located in some of the buildings <laughs> around where we are. I will certainly say no more myself, as I look nervously skywards. <laughs> So while doing Black Ops, 
you also, as a ruse academically, produced this wonderful book, Politicotainment, that you edited. Can you tell us a bit about that volume? That was a wonderful book in which you played a key role. <laughs> Despite that, it was a right, wonderful book. Right, right. Well, we, uh, you were the series editor for the Peter Lang book, Politicotainment, and that was a book where basically I wanted to write a book on the West Wing the te television series. I wanted to see the ideological, uh, I wanted to take apart the ideological, um, the ideology of the West Wing. Yeah. The re the, it's, it's, its reality, its realism was also its ideological thrust. And uh, nobody wanted to, no publisher wanted to, um, to publish it or they didn't believe in a whole idea about the West Wing and a couple of books had just come out. So we went to the Crossroads con conference where you introduced me to a number of, of interesting people, Mark Andreevich, uh, Jeff Jones. Um, uh, this is the, the Crossroads Cultural Studies Conference in, in Urbana-Champaign, Champaign, Illinois in 2004. Right. And uh, so I met Ricky Schubert there, the Danish uh, scholar from uh, Sweden Dansk, who wrote on um, Steven Spielberg. Um, and we put together the book on, on the way that entertainment formats negotiate and understand politics. I mean, politics has, pre has until the, the 2000s, until the end of the 90s, this has been one of those topics where, you know, television producers say, oh no, that's the death, you know, because politics was either about the politician who was dirty, um, it was never anything good about politics, and, um, and, and um, at that time I saw this kind of connection between the, uh, reality, t the reality TV and the way politics had been increasingly been taken, taken up in, in um, fiction programming, in entertainment programming. Um, so it was no longer yeah. a forbidden zone for bourgeois drama. Right. Now, explain this to me, something that's always puzzled me. You go back to Aristotle's politics, and there and in many other discourses, the occupation of politician is a very honored one. It seems to be an extremely ethical mm. orientation mm. that enables one to become a politician, mm. to be a figure worthy of governing others. And in some ways, you get in a country like the United States, where the head of state is elected, a mixture of this extraordinary derision of everyday political life, and denunciation of politicians and minimal participation in sophology, in voting and thinking about voting, but maximal respect for this office of the president in just the way that Aristotle would have recognized. That's strange. It is odd, isn't mm. it? It is odd, and I wonder how much of it is about on the one hand, the fact that capitalism completely drives United States politics in a bolder-faced way than in many other countries, along with imperialism, blended with an old-fashioned nostalgia that connects the office of the president, rather like the military, to something, in fact, beyond the state and into the heart of the nation. Mm. So effective is the propagandistic mm. articulation mm. of these mm. concepts. Mm. Well, they must show some kind of rhetorical respect for the people, because otherwise we wouldn't be, quote, living in a democracy, unquote. 
because these are elected, so therefore to, to disrespect them would also be to disrespect the choice of the people. Right. Although they seem to get, I mean, somehow the Republicans seem to get away with um, ridiculing President Obama on many occasions without um, simultaneously disrespecting many other people. In, in the Nordic countries, uh, is there much of a tradition, as there is, say, in the UK, of the political conspiracy thriller, which is a big ticket item on British television, mm. has been for decades, and of course has been a very important item in Hollywood cinema going back almost to the beginning. Mm. I mean, you could argue mm. that they may not have done much of it in television drama, but they've done a hell of a lot of it in their accounts of Washington DC, pretty much consistently over 80 years. Mm -hmm. Fantastic, BBC, fantastic political conspiracy. Um, um, well, there's there was there is a very famous Danish drama uh, about a woman politician who becomes prime minister of Denmark. It's very popular in Britain at the moment. In fact, my British friends tell me that that they watch it every, you know, they watch it religiously. So so uh, certainly Scandinavian political thrillers are are there are a number of them we could point to and they're actually getting I think more more um, I think the girl with the dragon tattoo is exactly uh, that kind of political absolutely it's yeah. very political yeah very interesting this because one of the reasons why there's so much Danish TV on Britain British television now is that the BBC can't afford to buy the top series from HBO or from the US networks and so because the killing, I knew there would be a political economy reason is. because the killing was very popular right. in the UK right it was the thin end of the wedge and right. now the thinking is okay we can get stuff from the Danes and some of those other funny people uh, for nothing uh, pretty much and this will take up hours that we don't have to create with our own programming and that otherwise would be taken up with much more expensive English language imports from the US. Mm. So it's meant that a very, very good television heritage is suddenly becoming hugely available to a British public. We had also a Swedish, uh, I think it was called The Princess, The Crown Princess, and it was about a woman becoming uh, Prime Minister in Sweden, but it was a Danish author and it was translated into Sweden uh, to, I mean, it was a Swedish production, but it was a Danish um, author. Now, so, I think yes. you've Girl with the Dragon Tattoo, a phenomenal success as a series of books and also, of course, a series of films, and now being remade in Hollywood. What's your view of all of that? I, I mean, haven't the seen the, the Hollywood one. Fine, but I'm more interested in the originals and the, the novels. How, what is their status in the Nordic countries, would you say? Well, actually, one of my colleagues, my former chair, Titi Soila, she teaches a class, a master's class, on the, the trilogy, the Swedish trilogy, where she basically asked the question, why is the first one good and the other two terrible? <laughs> Thinking of the films? The, the, films, the, books, the, the films. films. She's a film studies scholar. Right. So, um, so that is the, the, you know, the short answer to that, is that the first one, um, very, very well done. And my short answer to that is because the first one is done by a Dane, <laughs> and the other two are done by a Swede, and they're made for television. So, but funny, I think the same one who did the second two was also the director of the remake of The Smiley's People. I think it's uh, him. 
So that doesn't explain why the last two but, uh, are But thinking are about them in terms of the novels originally and their mm. account of Swedish mm. society. Well, um, their account of Swedish society is darker than most people experience. In other words, he does show a very dark side of, um, of trafficking which is most people are very not aware of the trafficking of East European women um, and it is a big problem um, and um, um, it's a it's an, an avowedly leftist in some ways anarchic account yes and that's the way he was that's the author as well pro-feminist worked, worked anti-racist yeah expo is a is a is a uh, a, um, news, a newspaper, an online product that exposes the far right, and Expo would have been at the forefront of exposing uh, Breivik, the Norwegian uh, killer, if he had lived. I mean, uh, he died, of course, Stig Larsson, very tragically, before the books were published, or right as they were being published. Um, of a heart attack. So uh, he worked tires, tirelessly for 20 years at Expo, exposing the far right. Um, and um, so, and the far right's um, pounding of immigrants. So, so um, he had a very uh, strong pathos. Yeah, oh, sure. Yeah. Moving away from Stieg Larsson, interesting though he may be to those of us who are not Swedish because the novels are so extraordinarily successful globally. Uh, let's go back to you, an equally if not more interesting person. And you, despite the temptations and blandishments of the dark side, move away from propagandizing on behalf of the Swedish Empire and instead go to work for a proper university. Yes. And now <laughs> you're the queen of a proper university. I wouldn't say that. <laughs> but you're at the University of Stockholm. How does that... Were you again pioneering media and communications there, or had it been going for a long time? Oh, mate, it has been going since that department, the Department of Journalism, Media and Communications. It um, came into being in, 19, uh, in 1989. Yes. Now I'm trying to say right. Uh, and it was a merger of the. And I'm. Because we just had an anniversary. Yes, it was. I think it was the 20 year anniversary. And that was pioneered by Shell Novak um, from the Center of Mass Communication Studies and the, and the Journalism School, which was separate. And they merged at this time. And so this has been, this department has been going since then. And it has a media and communications arm and a journalism arm. Um, How do they get on? How do I mean, they I'm get not on? asking you to speak about personal secrets, but in general, sort of intellectual terms, is one about nuts and bolts and the other about grand ideas, or is it not like that? Well, it's, um, I think it used to be more the case, but nowadays, for example, journalism research is almost not actually distinguishable anymore from medium communication studies. So uh, those who do theory, um, journalism theory, are also doing medium communication. And, and I think that the distinction between them is, is not very um, 
it's not very distinct. Um, the nuts and bolts are nuts and bolts who are not academics but teach the practicalities of journalism. And I think in terms of, I mean, my um, I have my best friends are journalists. So, so I would say I would say that journalists in general. I mean, my experience with journalists in general, and this is both BBC journalists who I've interviewed, CBS, CBS, you've been to CBS, I've been ITV, I've been. They are as their as their profession has become smaller and smaller, and they are threatened from all sides. They look to academia as a both to defend themselves uh, from the bean counters and the economic um, people who are trying to, to hit the bottom line or give them the bottom line all the time and also um, because they've, they want to remember why they're doing this and academe has the, still the idealist role of journalism as, as a defender of democracy. So, I mean, at least the journalists I know, they they do look to academe, although th although they say that generally you can learn these things without going to a university and a college. They always say that. Um, at the same time, they look to academe to help them defend their profession against encroachments from capitalism. And now, bloggers. That's very clearly a threat. Um, that citizen media is very clearly a threat to them. Uh, citizen media, which is amateur opinion media. Uh, amateur opinion media, yeah. And often very informed, very smart, very interesting. Mm. But nevertheless different. So, is the fate of newspapers and journalism in other forms as well under threat in Sweden the same way that it is in the United States? Oh, it's, yes. It's not in India or Japan or China? Exactly. It is. Okay, well, because Swedish uh, newspapers are not as advertising dependent as American, they still do, I think, they still do get very, they are advertising, quite advertising dependent. So it's taken a little bit longer for the industry to be hit with the kind of, what is the business model? Where is, where, everyone's trying to figure out, you know, the $10 million question. What is the business model of the future? So that is, that is just now having an impact. So say we are, what, five, ten years behind the U.S. in terms of, in terms of freaking out. <laughs> um, but, you know, at the same time, public service has become stronger and stronger and stronger. So public service is now outrunning, um, outrunning the uh, the hybrid t channel four television TV four, and the other commercial channels, and so now the commercial channels are using the British argument to the public service in an attempt to disarm public service, saying that they they. Uh, skew the market and they're messing things up for for them making money and and they're doing two populist uh, television programs and so so they're looking to the BBC or the, to the British um, ether media market to, to to find their arguments although they're making record profits I should say and of course it's an argument that is most famously associated with that magnificent paragon of intellectual quality, political morality, and ethical rectitude, namely James Murdoch. Yes. In his McTaggart lecture. Yes. At the Edinburgh Festival of Television.
year? Uh, oh, I think 2010 or 2009. An incredible idiot who's now thankfully completely discredited. Yes. But yes, it's interesting because the BBC does suffer from being too successful at being popular. And then the minute it does something that's not popular, it's failing really to speak to the audience and it's just a bunch of snobs. Mm. But of course, it's been an incredible technological pioneer in so many of these And fields. so has Swedish television. And Swedish, Swedish public television so, the as, same. Um, uh -huh. Yes, SVT Play, um, they've been at the forefront and now, thanks, and then we'd have to say thanks to the BBC, or no thanks to the BBC, <laughs> um, the so-called public service value test. I don't know if you know about that. No, okay, I don't. Well, the EU, as you well know. European Union. The European Union um, has, uh, they want everything to be, you know, uh, market-friendly and competition. Nothing should, should skew the market. So, um, in terms of, of uh, ether media and, you know, 800-pound gorillas like BBC, uh, they have um, instituted a, well, it's the BBC, how would I say, they, they founded the model public service value test. It's something the BBC tested in order to uh, stay ahead of EU regulation. So EU regulation says you must prove, every public service organization must prove that they, um, that they are not skewing the market, that they must prove that they get separate funding, that they're, they're not overfunding the public service uh, organizations. And so the BBC came up with this public service value test, which means that they have to prove that every new service they introduce uh, does, uh, uh, does not skew the market. Well, that means that we give away our innovative ideas and let all our competitors see this innovative idea before we are allowed to, in, um, to introduce it. And Swedish television, SVT, says that this may work fine for an 800-pound gorilla, but we're a very small. We're only a 150-pound gorilla. And, and uh, which of course they're huge. SVT is very large compared to all the other television channels. Um, but it still is a problematic that they have to deal with. And of course in, in Britain it's also slightly different because the major commercial competitors are also public sector broadcasters, something that people often mm. forget. Mm. ITV is a public service broadcaster, yes. although a privately owned commercial sector. Channel 4 is a public service broadcaster. Anybody that is at the top of the dial and has special frequency preference in the UK, has public service obligations. Mm. Whereas people that are not at the top of the dial mm. or are on satellite tend not to have, not right. to be public service broadcasters. But it's not often understood the BBC is not the only public service broadcaster in the UK. But I wasn't aware of the value test, and thank you for educating me. That is extremely interesting. I've forgotten half of it, although I should remember it. <laughs> well, I'm ashamed. There, there was a, there's a third. There's a third stipulation uh -huh. from the EU regulation, and there's a new book about the public service value test that Nordicum has just come out with, 2011. Yes, at the end of 2011, uh, and it's with people like Janet's Steamers, um, uh, Low, uh, Bardol. So it's. I shouldn't say names because I'm probably forgetting them. <laughs> but it's a I, my short-term memory is not very. But if is you're that due to many years of drinking and must like be, that? must be. <laughs>
those the last years of the between 1990 and 1998 yeah, during dissertation research. That's where my my uh, short-term memory. Was. Absolutely. We've got about just about five minutes left, uh, Christina, and I wanted to ask you about. Uh, what happens, what you're working on between politicotainment, which I guess is this 2004, 2005, mm. 2006? So the book came in 2007. It comes out in 2007, right. but I but guess we, you're working we on did it, it in 2005 and yeah. six. For those who are not academics, the publishing timelines for these things are agonizingly long. One of the reasons why we're often out of date, but also one of the reasons why sometimes we're interesting both as historical artifacts and as commentators on a longer past than the view one often receives. But after political attainment, what did you? What were you up to uh, between that period, 2007, and the research on the Arab World blogs from mm. 2010 on? Well, I was uh, part of a project um, at Sodotone run by Stefan Eriksson called Media Houses. Media Houses? Mm -hmm. And it was, it was a uh, multidisciplinary project with some friends of ours, architects and philosophers, about um, monumental media, uh, media houses, like the BBC Broadcasting House, like CCTV, the new CCTV built by Rem Kool House in China, Beijing, Ostankino in Moscow, uh, that you know looks like a rocket built in the 60s um, that media build houses to their own greatness to memorialize themselves. memorialize themselves um, but the the striking thing about them is of course people are not allowed inside they're just allowed inside on very strictly controlled tours uh, but everyone knows where they are and uh, what they're doing now is in in a mobilized in a mobile world what does the broadcasting house do? It doesn't close down, it actually renovates. Same with Ostankino and same with CCTV. So, in a, and in New York, the New York Times bought a whole new building. So, at times when you think that these, these have to downsize, um, you know, uh, I, I did it in, in Bush House. My, my piece in the book, which I edited with Stefan, um, was about the BBC World Service in Bush House. I remember hearing you give a paper about that. What's the title of the book? Media Houses. Well, the book is also called Media Houses. Media Houses. And the, so uh, Bush the, House was incorporated into Broadcasting House, not physically, but the people in it. They're moved still over. there. They, oh, they are moving, they haven't moved but they yet. haven't moved yet. <laughs> and they said they all. They, when, when I interviewed them, they said, oh, the, we're always moving. So, so I think some of the languages have moved, but the English has not moved. Or at least the ones I listen to haven't moved yet. So, yes, they will be moving. They will be moving. Do you think that these media houses will die? Because the other day I was with a visitor from Mexico and a Hollywood producer was driving us around via some of the studios and my friend, Andre Dorce Ramos, asked my other friend, Lloyd Segan, both of whom, by the way, have been in the pod, whether he thought that these studios, these mortuaries, or these very lively bits of cement and plastic and whatnot, namely uh, Sony and Culb Studios, would still be there in 10 years' time. And Lloyd thought for a moment and said, you know, that's a very good question I haven't thought about, maybe not. And I mean, Sony's in what used to be MGM, it's been there for, you know, getting on for a century in Culver City. So, do you think that these great temples and living broadcasting sites will become mausoleums? 
they, I think they, as long as those broadcasters want to want to create an hour around them, those buildings will be there. I think. And thinking of um, the media houses book. This means to me, I think you've, you've listed about five or six volumes that you've produced just really in the last decade. Mm. Since I didn't talk about the tsunami book, but it's oh, okay. <laughs> let's, let's, they're not shutting down this coffee shop for another four minutes. So, and we have... You know, I don't need to talk about the tsunami book. I think it's important to talk about the tsunami oh, book. Right, this okay. was, of course, a global crisis, but one of particular moment for Swedes. Yes. Yes, there were uh, many who died. Large numbers of holiday makers were yes, killed in yes, this tragedy, yes. which of course killed what a quarter of a million people. In yes. Uh, tell us about the tsunami book, which I must admit I'd forgotten, and I do uh, apologize. Well, that's one of the reasons I stayed at the Defence College because they funded it, <laughs> or they helped to fund it. Um, actually, um, it was funded by a, another related funder, but it was placed there at the Swedish Defence College. So that book is with uh, Maria Hellman, Alexa Robertson, and Birgitta Mral. And uh, we looked at it's, uh, the transnational national uh, coverage of the tsunami. We looked at rhetoric uh, by the German. The, um, the Germans lost as many as Swedes they, uh, that died, but the Germans had this crisis rhetoric that, that calmed people down and, and made them understand. Whereas in Sweden, they mismanaged the crisis, the crisis itself, and, uh, which made it worse. There was a lot of controversy after the fact about right. the way the Swedish government had handled it. Right, there, right. So, and there are a couple of books uh, about different, like how Finland, Finland and Sweden def dealt differently with it as well. Um, but our take is like, we looked at CNN and TV4, and we um, we looked at you know whether whether a broadcaster like CNN, who's always on the ground, is live, um, had literally teams, were in the field uh, longer than anyone else, had more people than anyone else, were in India, Indonesia, Thailand, they were all over whether they covered it in a way that spoke to focus groups better than the Swedish, you know, domestic channel, TV4, which is the hybrid, also a hybrid public service channel. Um, and we found that, that they didn't do that. Yeah, so it was basically the case that CNN had, had a kind of a bird's eye view and many people Swedes or non-Swedes, we, we had focus groups that were, you know, Anglo-Saxons Anglo and we had, uh, you know, students from other countries and, and we had uh, immigrants, East European immigrants and uh, they, they felt that CNN, and this is at the beginning of the crisis, the first week, that they were covering it as they would cover any flood or any natural catastrophe. And it, CNN learned uh, a lot about covering catastrophe in that um, in that crisis. They learned things that they um, that they uh, are used again in Katrina later on about personalizing crisis, about about allowing people to get about, about allowing their their reporters to get emotional. Um, 
about up close pictures of of people. Um, yeah. Well, Christina, the gate's coming down. I know. Locking us it. into I the know. coffee bar. Oh, no. Oh, so, no. regretfully, we're going to have to call a halt. I'd yes. like to issue an invitation to you to come back into the pod if you could when you've finished all the Arab blogging work and share with us again some of that research and what your ultimate findings are. Would you all return right. to yes. our in a warm embrace? Yes, happily. Thank you. Great to chat.